Russell, thanks for talking with me today. Yeah, sure. You're one of the co-founders for Stop AAPI Hate, and I wanted, I wanted to see if you could just give a brief introduction of what that organization is about and what you've been doing and what's the latest update. Um, so I'm a professor in Asian American Studies at San Francisco State, and when COVID-19 was arriving last year, uh, we knew that Asians would be blamed for the disease and face versus violence and versus policy. So we started an organization with Chinese for affirmative action and Asian Pacific Policy Planning Council called Stop AAPI Hate. We were tracking personal accounts of racism, and to date we've gotten over 6,600 incidents of racism um, from the, across the nation. And they've just been horrific. They um, involve a lot of profanity, a lot of racial epithets, a lot of yelling, um, a lot of hate directed towards Asians. So that I wasn't surprised to see other late killed this year or the Atlanta shootings because I saw how much vitriol there's been towards Asians during COVID-19. And it's continued this year. I actually think the quarantine suppressed the racism because Asians weren't interacting with the public that much last year. We'd only go out for shopping, but now as people come out of the pandemic and people are interacting more, we're actually seeing more cases of racism. Yeah, so I think one of the, I, I think I heard the statistic and, and maybe you can um, verify this, but a lot of the reports have been um, by women and or or more more than men. So how do you how do you think you explain the increased uh, reporting by women versus men? It's true. Women are harassed twice as much as men, and girls are attacked twice as much as boys. So I think bullies attack those whom they think they can bully. Uh, men have always harassed women, and so they're now using COVID nineteen as an excuse to attack women. I wonder also if men tend to tend to not want to report it because as a as a matter of shame um, or humiliation as well because I, I I can't imagine that it's not happening. I can't I I know it's happening to men as well, right? Where I'm confident yeah, it's, it is. we're not saying yeah, it's true. Men are getting harassed, but I do think that women get attacked a lot more than men. In the mm -hmm. same way, elderly and youth are attacked disproportionately. Yeah, yeah. I also appreciated your recent article, or, or I think you were interviewed by the San Jose Mercury News about um, mental health um, and how you're uh, wanting to take care of yourself um, in this time um, by, by seeing a therapist. And, and, and that through my journey of counseling, I found it really helpful. Has that been, has that been also your experience? I don't know. I've just been a month or two, and it's making me a lot more conscious of what I need to grow in. But, um, the moment and the year has been racially traumatizing for Asian Americans. It's a collective amount of experience, I think. Um, Two-fifths of uh, Asian Americans have experienced direct racism, and one-fifth now just, uh, displays signs of racial trauma. That's elevated um, long-term symptoms of anxiety or depression, hypervigilance or avoidance. And even if you don't experience racism directly, I think people experience it vicariously. You know, if you see an elderly attack, you could see, oh, that could have been my mom or my grandmother. And so I think a lot of Asian Americans feel like they're in the state of siege. I don't know any family that hasn't told their elders not to stay indoors. Hmm. And for me, the racial trauma um, is seen in just 
short-temperedness. I don't sleep as well. I uh, Because I deal with soft ape, I hate every day. I, I dream about it every day, about like cranking out reports, about dealing with conflict. So it's been a difficult burden to bear. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Besides therapy, which I know is something you, you're newer to, what are some ways in which you help cope? And what would you recommend for others who have ex- you know, experienced this, this kind of trauma um, in terms of coping, especially since therapy is you know, kind of st- stigmatized and not everyone has access to it? Actually, the Mercury article got it wrong. It's not the first time I thought therapy okay. counseling. Yeah, I don't know where they got um, But... I think I do a lot of coping um, mechanisms. I journal and pray daily. I read scriptures. I run every day. I have pretty good social support for a guy. I think um, I have small groups and I hang out with friends. Um, but it is true. I think as I explore. Um, you know, what causes my own shortcomings, my own flaws. I think a lot of it are triggers from the past. And I think we all get triggered. And we need to explore what's triggering us and how we could temper our responses to feeling threat. Yeah. So one of the, I, I was able to listen to one of your um, talks that you gave to Berkeley Covenant Church. Um, and I wanted to kind of explore that idea a little bit, um, since we're both followers of Jesus. Um, and it actually has some similar themes um, to what you've talked about um, in the past, especially in one of your books, um, At Home in Exile. Um, and I've given that to both of my sons, and they love it. And they've uh, my oldest son gave it to his girlfriend to read, and she loved it. And then my um, second son has given it to another friend just recently. Uh-huh. Um, and yeah, and so it's your book is continue to have an impact and you just explore this interesting idea of what it means to be in exile. Um, and then in your, well, I'll let you talk about it. How, how do you, how does this, uh, exile identity play into, um, everything that's going on, um, with stop API hate? Well, I think a lot about one of the sources of racism and for me, the COVID-19 has two basic sources. One is this notion that Asians are perpetual foreigners that they don't belong, that they're outsiders to be excluded. And we get that on a daily basis when we're asked, where are you from, or your English is so good. We get it in our um, the incident reports that we receive where in 50% of the cases, people say things like, go back to China, you have to think while they pack us or bid on us. Um, this perpetual foreigner stereotype is a longstanding um, stereotypes about Asians in the West, um, that they're disease-ridden, that they're still white workers' jobs, and so they're a threat either to the economy or to the public health and need to be excluded. Um, so this treatment really explains why Asians are experiencing horrific treatment now, because America treats foreigners really badly, right? We build laws against foreigners, we separate the families of foreigners because we think it's okay. And so now, as Asians being treated as foreigners, people feel like they have license to cough or spit on us, or they can, you know, attack our elders. And so if you have a foreigner status, you're treated as the other, the us versus them, um, binary. And I think that's really how Asians are treated at the moment and have been historically. 
the Bible has a lot to say about being foreigners. And I think the more Asians actually reclaim this foreigner status, even if it's a lowly status in the world's eyes, we get a glimpse of God's grace and his power being sufficient in our weakness. So even though um, we're facing racist taunts as being perceived as foreigners, I think foreigners have a special place in God's eyes, just the way the poor, the orphan, the widow uh, are also have a special place in God's eyes. So is, uh, you know, you, you talked through some scriptures that um, explore that kind of identity. And I know one of your, one of them was uh, the Good Samaritan, right? I think you used in the Berkeley Covenant talk. And then the other, another was, um, or no, maybe that was the Asian American Christian Collaborative article where you talk about Luke 17. But w- how do you find those um, kind of biblical parallels? You know, where do you see that throughout? Where are some specific places you see that in scripture where it's it's uh, God has a special heart for the for the for the foreigner. Yeah, one scriptural passage is Matthew twenty-five, and it's the parable of the or not even the parable. It's the story of the sheep and the goat, and Jesus separates the sheep from the goats, and the sheep are the ones who um, feed the hungry, who clothe the naked and who welcome in the stranger. And then Jesus says, I was, you were serving me. I was with them when you served these people. And I want to be where Jesus is at. Hmm. Um, that's why I moved into a low-income neighborhood, because I know that Jesus moves among the poor. Jesus takes care of the widow. And in the same way, Jesus has a special place in his heart for the foreigner, the stranger who gets mistreated. And if Jesus is there in the midst of the foreigner, and then Asians recognize that we are foreigners, then we may be able to see God in the midst of us, hmm. even if we're facing racist attack. And so it's, for me, this is an invitation for Asian Americans who are usually trying to be upperly mobile, trying to gain status, to say, no, it's not in our wealth or power that we meet God. It's not in our supposed worldly blessing that we meet God. It's in our weakness that we meet God. It's when we're not noble. It's not when we're uh, powerful. It's when we're um, shamed and it's when we're hurt that God meets us most closely. So I think for me, this COVID-19 experience is a chance for me to see God's movement among the poor, among the marginalized, among the poor. And the more we adopt that status, the more we'll be able to see God's movement. I don't know if that makes sense to others, but I really believe that God's power is sufficient in our weaknesses, and we have to boast in our weaknesses. Yeah, I think it's um, there's some really interesting tensions that go with that, um, because the Jews also had their foreigner experience, having been enslaved in Egypt. And God allows that intentionally for um, the Jews to have this experience. And as they come out of it, there's a command in Leviticus um, to treat foreigners as they do themselves, as, as to treat a foreigner as you would um, someone who's Jewish, um, because you also were foreigners in Egypt. And so God has this uh, intent to show the Jews, hey, you know, you've, you've experienced something. You need to have a special compassion and empathy for foreigners because you've gone through the same, the, the exact same thing. 
And I think there's been, um, yeah, at least some comparison between what it means to be Asian American and also what it means to be Jewish because, um, you know, Jewish people have been very successful in, in a lot of aspects of, of life throughout all over the world. How, how, how would you make that comparison between being Jewish and, and Asian American? Would that be something that you would, yeah? Yeah, I think the comparison is apt. I think everybody can understand what it means to be a foreigner, to be on a sense of journey and to enter new places, new settings where they feel awkward, where they feel lost, where they feel like they're in a limbo place. That's the whole notion of pilgrimage, that you take a special time where it's different from your usual time and space to meet God. That's where we usually meet God. Not in the normal, but when we sort of take ourselves out of the moment, go on retreat and uh, enter a special liminal space. In the same way, the Jews were taught to remember that they were foreigners, that they would have empathy for others, that they would develop God's compassion and heart. And people, a lot of people ask me, what do we tell our kids now as Asian Americans when we're experiencing so much racism? And we have to tell our is the race talk the way African-Americans do. And what I encourage parents to tell their children is that, yeah, learn what it's like to feel like being an outsider at the moment. Feel that pain. And then you'll understand how others who are treated as outsiders feel. And you'll learn to welcome them and you'll learn to include them. You'll learn to empathize and show compassion with them the way Jesus welcomed us into his family. And so for me, experiencing the foreigner status of exclusion, um, even though it's painful, teaches us empathy. And for me, that's one of the most important virtues and values for Christians to develop. It's what our kids need to learn. If they want to be good ministers of Christ, they have to learn to empathize with others and then draw them into the so again, this is another reason to adopt the foreigner status. Um, you understand that Jesus is in the midst of the foreigners, and if we adopt an empathy foreigners, then we know how to welcome people into the church. You mentioned this idea of pilgrimage, um, and I think in our goal-oriented society, we always want to get somewhere. There's, there's, there's always a, a destination. So when when you talk about pilgrimage, um, especially as as an Asian American Christian, wh where where are we going? Because from a from a uh, I think from a, a stop AAPI hate standpoint, the destination is no more hatred, no more animosity, no more tension. Um, but I think you might be talking about something different. It's sort of the same. Um, I think about if I'm going to therapy for racial trauma, what does healing look like? If I talk about the journey from uh, experiencing history and centuries of racism towards a state of freedom from racism, of free liberation, it's uh, a similar aspiration, uh, freedom, uh, healing, uh, true community. Hmm. So I think... Um, we're all on a journey. This world is broken. And um, if you only want what the world has to offer, then you're going to try to, you'll probably perpetuate racism and oppression because you're trying to get what the world has to offer. And the best way to get what the world has to offer is to compete 
is to get ahead, is to keep others down, right? And because what the world wants is status or comfort or wealth or self-enjoyment. And I think all those things actually keep others down if you want to get to those places. And instead, the journey for me from healing from my racial trauma and in terms of stopping API hate is to get into a sense of true community, uh, love and compassion. So for me, it's the journey towards heaven. And it's a process, we'll get there when Jesus comes back, but Jesus is ushering in his kingdom now, a kingdom of peace and hope and justice. And we're, as Christians, supposed to reflect that. Yeah. And you said something really important there that I think um, may, and again, I think you're right. This is not a this is not a distinction necessarily, but it is an emphasis. Is that it is um, well, I'll, I'll I'll try to put it in my words, and you can you can correct me. Um, it sounds primarily to be an inward journey, but that that definitely has an outward manifestation. But you talked about healing, um, and and some aspect of reflection, but then that also involves empathy. It's both and. It's society also being healed. It's creation being healed. I feel like God's come to redeem all the world from its brokenness. And so in terms of society, it is freedom from racism. It's, it's basically a society that doesn't have insiders and outsiders. Hmm. And um, in terms of creation, it seems like we would steward resources well, and we wouldn't like, uh, seek to extract as much resources as we can from the earth. On the individual level, it is healing. It is development of virtual, personal virtues of grace and forgiveness, of patience, the fruits of the spirit. So I think God's salvation is broad and it redeems and stays all aspects of life. Yeah, yeah, and I do think there are some some tensions with that, and I think I think you know, well, I'll acknowledge that we probably don't. Um, stand in the same place from a from a political standpoint. I, I'm not actually sure exactly where <laughs> where I stand um, politically. Um, and one of the books that I'm reading is is Vadi Bakum's Fault Lines, which is um, discussing the new religion of anti-racism. And so it seems like there are, um, is some considerable um, evangelical opposition to critical race theory, and and probably I'm guessing uh, some of the things that. Uh, you know, stop AAPI hate represent. How do you how do you respond to some of this? I mean, I think you 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 noticed that I was trying to draw some distinction between the individual or inward uh, versus kind of the outward and societal. Um, how do you how do you respond to some of those critiques um, uh, that that evangelicals have uh, regarding critical race theory and some of the work that you're doing? Yeah, you know, I really don't understand the critique of critical race theory. I think it's actually really in line with um, some gospel perspectives of seeking God's justice, of seeking God's peace, and trying to um, support the marginalized. I think for me, ethnic studies and understanding race helps us understand disparities and inequalities, helps us understand why some people have so much wealth, so much riches, and other people don't. And I really think that inequity is part of the brokenness of the world. I think ethnic studies and critical race exposes the sin of the world. 
that God has come to redeem, that Jesus has come into the world to show a different way. So for me, it's an alignment in being prophetic and showing this is where the road's broken. In the same way that Stop API Hate is showing, this is a real screwed up society if it allows people to, or raises people to cough and spit on others, that raises a society that separates families, then um, it's helpful. Anything can become a gospel to people. People are saying, oh, uh, critical race theory is an ideology or a um, religion. In the same way, capitalism seems to be a religion. Christian nationalism seems to be a religion. Or, uh, this notion that America is a, has a Christian heritage and it should be a continue to be a white Christian nation. I think that's what a cult that's led to the insurrection of the White House, right? So a lot of things can become gospels and religions that are not true to the gospel. And we got to watch out for that. Yeah, I don't think critical race theory should be anybody's religion, but I think it is a good way to analyze what's happening in the world and how to make it better. Yeah. Yeah, and I hear that. And I think so. some of the specific critiques are um, viewing everything through the lens of power, right? As if power is the only dynamic or or the only valid spectrum to evaluate uh, society. Um, and then number two, that it's, um, that it's helpful as a deconstructive lens, but not as much as a constructive, as something constructive. What it's trying to build, it, it's not clear what it's trying to build. So those are the two critiques that I've, I've heard. Yeah, I mean... Nobody says power is the only way to analyze the world. There's lots of other ways that the world faces sin and brokenness. And um, it is really hard for people to develop a constructive way to look at things. A lot of theology uh, isn't fully constructive and helpful. So we do need a vision that uh, I think Jesus reveals in the way his, his own life, his own teachings, the way he treated his disciples. Yeah, and that, that brings up some um, probably attention that you're aware of is one of the things that I think is a strength about being an Asian American is that we tend to be self-effacing. And I think the, uh, the, the value that you've talked about in, in embracing the foreigner status is to have empathy and compassion for other foreigners. And so how do you kind of negotiate, I mean, perhaps in an irony or, 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 or tension, um, that as Asian Americans, we're advocating for ourselves um, in, in, in the midst of this. And it feels strange to find ourselves at the center of this much attention, um, you know, recently. How, how, do you, how do you kind of navigate that tension when we're naturally uh, not wanting a lot of attention around us? Yeah, I think what created such a mass movement in Asian Americans is that we're not fighting for ourselves. It's not an individualistic orientation we're trying to being our individual right. I think a lot of us are fighting for our elders. When we see our elders attack, that cuts close to hope. That cuts to our sense of family. That cuts to our sense of collective injustice. So um, we're not being self-effacing by seeking um, to stop API 8 because um, we're not being self-seeking. We're seeking to protect our elders. And I think that's a noble collective perspective. It's a family-oriented movement. And that's why I think so many people are behind it. Yeah, yeah.
Yeah, and so and so in transition into that, you uh, there's an article I think it was um, it was in NBC New York New York about six ways to help uh, regarding this movement, and one of them is I think you mentioned kind of taking walks around Asian neighborhoods, um, and 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 taking walks at different times, and and I do that, and I um, my neighborhood's probably thirty to forty percent Asian. Um, and definitely I see elder, elderly, Asian elderly in the mornings. Um, they're always, there's a bunch of uh, couples. Um, and one of them that I, I know personally, and we all, they'll watch us working out. We have a great conversation. Um, but I have noticed that, um, especially later in the evening, I don't see any of these <laughs> Asian couples uh, walking around the park at night. I don't know how to, I'm not sure what I can do about that. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't know what to how, how would you respond, you know, given that kind of situation, what's going on in my neighborhood? Yeah, yeah I'm sort of worried, maybe over-alarmed the elders, so that they're alike. A lot of them are self-isolating, and that's not helpful with their mental health. That's actually not helpful with their physical health. They need to exercise. They need to socialize. Uh, it's harder for them to connect on, online. And so there's a key balance between protecting them from racism and crime and versus making them so fearful, so anxious that they can't go out. And um, some of our recommendations for the elderly aren't necessarily policy recommendations that government It's actually a more community recommendation. I think our elders are really under a sense of fear. Do they feel that perpetual foreigner stereotype that they're not welcomed? That the outside world is dangerous to them. And what we need to do as a community, not just as individuals, is to make them feel safe, to create that sense of welcome and hospitality. I was just talking about that Christians need to develop. And for Asian elders, a sense of welcome would be, I think, if people greeted them, if people acknowledged them, called them auntie or grandpa, and bow to them the way they would be honored in Asia. So I think giving them the respect that they deserve is just a basic way to make them feel more safe and supported. So I'm actually calling on the community overall to start treating all others in that way with respect and welcome. And the more, like what you're doing is by talking to them and acknowledging them, I think they'll feel more safe. The other things that Elderly groups are doing, are, are doing group walks with elders so that they're not alone, um, chaperoning elders if they need to go shopping or go out. And one of the best recommendations I've heard is to have Asian family and the grandkids invite the grandparents out. Because mm. I don't think, and then and invite them out for dim sum or ice cream. Because that's the language of love of the Asian. And I think grandparents will do anything for the grandkids. Right? Yeah. That's, slowly get them out of their pandemic seclusion is to be invited out by their own family. Right, right. Well, how would you um, maybe counsel or advise directly um, an elderly couple or person? Um, because like you said, we may have over-alarmed um, the, the elderly, right? Um, and, and yet we... Part would part of making them safe say, hey, you know what? Feel free to go for a walk, but be careful. Or how, how do you how do you make that kind of recommendation? Yeah, it depends on how um, frail they are. But I would say, yeah, grandmas, if you're going to go out, ask someone to go with you. We're here to support you for now. Yeah, 
And if you need to go out, then let others know that you are going out and check in when you get back. It's the yeah. same thing I would tell a teenager. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's hard. I mean, just thinking of my own parents, um, I know they, there is a, a sense of pride, right. And not having to depend, um, on other people. And so I think the idea of checking in is a little bit, um, I don't want to say distasteful. It's just something I, I'm definitely not used to doing with them, um, because they've been so independent, um, up to this point. Um, and I would want, I, I, yeah, I'd want them to con to continue doing that. So it's it's it is some of a, somewhat of a transition for me to uh, think about caring for them in a way that they used to care for me. But I know yeah. a lot of us as our as we have aging parents are making that transition. Yeah, I think it's a good pattern to develop a sense of checking in. Right, that's we talk about what are the new norms that we've learned during the pandemic as the student pause. I know a lot of people are checking in with their families more and just maintaining it. Right, right, absolutely. You know, uh, one of the things that it mentions also in the in the six things is making um, public statements and, and pushing your, you know, either workplace or faith based organization um, to make a public statement. And um, as a new lead pastor, I'm I'm uncomfortable um, issuing a public statement about AAPI. So how would you kind of talk me through this and and i i think some of the explanation around it is you know I, I feel like my sense is that public statements tend to be performative um and can be alienating um and i'm also deeply conflicted about some of these issues um and i know for me yeah i just i i just want to be i want to act out i want to act live out um the values that you've talked about um maybe a lot more so than um than making a statement because i think that's more difficult how would you, you know, advise me regarding that? Yeah, you know, making a statement such as a corporation saying we're with our Asian American employees and denouncing the racism, there shouldn't be any injustice or um, racism tolerated. I used to think they're really performative as well, symbolic and don't mean much, but now I think they're really significant. Um, Asian Americans usually feel invisible, omitted, because America is usually discussed in terms of white black term. Uh, history, race relations, politics is always in a white black dynamic, and since Asians are neither white nor black, they feel omitted and disinvited, and our concerns are often ignored. So, actually, having a statement coming from the top that says we will allow any uh, racism directed towards Asian Americans helps Asian Americans feel seen and heard. And I think that's really important for Asian Americans at this moment in our period of crisis to be supported, to be seen and heard, to have others recognize and legitimate their feelings and their concerns. Um, the other thing that it does is that it creates a culture of respect and dignity. Words matter, and so we saw that last year when the president used terms like Chinese virus and Kung Fu, it normalized heat and enabled people, gave people license to make fun of others, to treat others badly. And what we need to do, sadly, is to reestablish a cultural norm of respect. It's just like I said, we need a cultural norm of respecting our elders. So whether it's a church culture or a corporate culture, people need to learn to use languages of love and empathy. And I think these statements establish 
those cultures. It's just like a purchase mission statement or a vision statement. A, an official statement declares this is how we're going to be at that. And so if it's a statement that's not simply performative, but then you let your actions uh, speak more loudly than your word, people at least know what actions are supposed to follow the yeah. official word, right? It helps people understand this is clearly what's about you. And so, yeah, we don't want words for the sake of saying things. We want words to help dictate the culture by which actions so I, what I hear you saying is uh, there are many ways to show respect, um, to demonstrate respect. And making a public statement is certainly one of them. Um, and that's something that I haven't, I actually haven't thought that much about, that it was, that was a gesture of respect and honor um, to be able to make a statement like that. Um, and, I, and I do appreciate it. It just, at the, when everything seems uh, so on trend and faddish, there's just a suspicion that, that comes up in me. Um, but I think also being able to being willing to talk about it um, during service publicly um, and repeatedly, because one of the things that does bother me is that it seems like making a statement is almost like checking the box and then you can move on to something else. Um, whereas in my mind, it would be, hey, this is a this is a commitment to respect and honor that I want to have, you know, from week to week um, and be able to discuss. Yeah, that's not that it becomes from your core value and you just connect maybe the anti-racism to one of your core values. It could yes. respect the core value of love. It could respect the core value of justice. It could respect the core value of empathy. There's a lot of core values that could connected. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, for me, I think if you don't discuss it, and this is um, something I challenge our own church on, it's a real pastoral concern for Asian Americans. So if you're not addressing the live experience of Asian Americans, we're really worried about our elders and impacting their lifestyle. If we're worried about our kids going to school and we're not sending our kids to the classroom because of fear of racism and you're not talking about it, then you're not meeting the needs of your congregation. This is large segment that are fearful or the large segment of non-Asians who need to learn how this is how you care for your and your brother or sister in the, in the congregation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and frankly, I, I haven't, um, I haven't had this explicit conversation with my parents, for example, right? Cause I mean, a lot of times when we think about elders, the first people we think about is our parents and our grandparents. Um, and I haven't had an explicit conversation with them about whether they're afraid, um, to go out to, to walk at, to walk at either in the day or at night. Um, and so this is a great opportunity to begin having those conversations, um, with our family members, as you talked about, um, and then also addressing that at a church level to say, hey, you know, this is a way you can start having conversations and to respect and honor them and to show care and concern, uh, you know, assuming that you haven't already, and then also concern for neighbor. Um, and, and Yeah, you know, we just had a discussion at our church about the topic um, two weeks ago. And then we just had an outpour of emotion, of grief and anxiety and fear, and the, the pastoral staff realized that a large segment of their community was dealing with this issue and they had never dealt with it. Hmm. And it seems to me that's a lost opportunity to really care for membership if they're not discussing the issue. How did you do that? I, you, yeah. It was, I didn't do it. The pastoral created a special listening session for the API. And people came out and shared their pains and their fears and their hurts. 
that's something I would definitely consider doing mm -hmm. um, for our, our church as well. It, and again, yeah. just, you can just make it, it was only for Asian Americans to listen to each other and hear each other. And they may feel more comfortable among themselves to talk about it. So just gave them the opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know, San Jose is probably, you know, straddles some uh, both affluent and, and not, not as affluent. And I think it's, it's interesting being uh, a pastor of a, you know, we're relatively young and a lot of, a lot of our people work in tech um, and we're, we're probably majority Asian. Um, I, I wonder if that could create some tensions as far as like experiencing both racism, but also at the same time privilege. How do you, how would you speak to some of that, those tensions where we, we sit in kind of these white adjacent places and we experience some privilege? Um, I think, you know, the experience of Asian American healthcare was really similar, right? You think they would feel like the model minority, they achieved it, they're doctors, they're highly educated, they made it in the workplace, yet their own patients were treating them badly, were stunning them, they were mm. not thinking, mm. you know, I don't want an Asian doctor. And so we all have faced these tensions and contradictions, and African Americans do, just because you're, um, an engineer or have a lot of wealth doesn't make you immune to racism. And so I think if you feel that way, you feel that your power, your status, or your occupation should protect you from the world's brokenness, then I think you're not a wrong religion. You do are sort of uh, mistaken in your thinking that your status is going to protect you from life. You can be an engineer, make a lot of money. You're going to get sick someday. You're going to get hurt someday. And they will have problems. This doesn't make you I think people recognize that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why you need the truth. That's why you need Jesus. Even if you've made it in the world's eyes, you're still experiencing the brokenness of the world. You'll realize that just because you made it, there's homeless people, and that should hurt you. You know, that, that there's. People are still dying from COVID, and that's just hurt you if you're going to be a person. Yeah. Yeah. Russell, maybe I can ask you um, one last question, and uh, and this relates to um, being a father um, of a of a teenage son, um, and we both have teenage sons, and um, that are here in the Bay Area. And for my my two oldest, they um, they've told me, especially my oldest, he doesn't he hasn't experienced any um, overt racism. Um, and I've, I've had some, and I've shared some of my experiences and, and my parents have shared some of their experiences, but he, he has a little trouble, um, relating, um, to some of these stories. How do you, I mean, I, I have some idea, but how, how do you talk to your son about this? Especially whether, especially given that he may not have firsthand experience, um, of some of the things that you, you know, you, 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 your work. Yeah. I think the first thing I would tell them is that America is so individualistic that unless you're experiencing something firsthand, that doesn't mean it's not important to you or it doesn't exist. I think that's such a narrow perspective. I haven't experienced it, so it's not an issue. That's really self-focused. You could say, you may not have experienced but half the Asian American community has. You may not have experienced it, but your friends have. You may not have experienced it overtly, but you see it online. You've seen how people get trolled. You've seen 
an offensive post that hurt people. So just because you don't experience something firsthand doesn't mean it doesn't exist, doesn't mean it's a problem. You may not have experienced a wildfire due to climate change, but it doesn't mean it doesn't exist climate change, right? So don't make your life based on your firsthand experience. It's the first thing I would tell them. Because then you have a small bubble and a narrow view that I think misses God's perspective for you. The whole idea of Jesus came to save you so that you wouldn't be so caught up in your own little world. That you would see the Samaritan, or you would see the person who is robbed and lying on the ground. And so you would be like a Samaritan. So that's the first thing. It's like, just because you don't experience things doesn't mean it exists, that's not painful, and that you should be working to address it. you got to learn how to empathize with others, too. And you need to experience life so that you can have a compassion for others, too. Um, secondly, I think we all have experienced racism. Again, there's indirect racism. If you have a grandparent who's been attacked, then you've experienced racism. It's not, again, about your individual experience. It's a collective experience. So um, a lot of Asian Americans have been hurt, people have been killed, and if you don't feel it, then you again need to understand that you too have a been experienced as a member of the group. Maybe you not individually, but another grandparent has. And if you allow yourself to feel that pain, then again, you get a sense of group connectedness and a sense of empathy that God wants you to have. So, um, Recognize that everybody experiences racism indirectly. That I think, I just did this with the Stop API Youth. 40% said they felt directly harassed, but when I said, how many of you seen something online, a racist post, someone joking about you, someone deriding the Asian community? And 90% said they experienced that. That's experiencing racism too. It still impacts you, even if you're not aware of it. It makes you hate being Asian. It makes you want to become more white. And that's the problem with a lot of Asian Americans. We seek whiteness. We don't necessarily want to become white people, but we want the power of whites, we want the status of whites, we want the privilege of whites, we want the meritocracy of whites. And that just means buying into the world's values. And thirdly, I think we're all experiencing racism in that um, we have implicit biases. And it's not a negative impact. You may have an implicit bias because you have racial privilege and you may look down on other groups subconsciously. You're still, that's, that's racism impacting you. It's your own implicit bias. You've become racist yourself and you don't even aware of it. So that um, is how you're impacted by racism is that you yourself are a racist. And I would say everybody's a racist, that we have hold racial views that put people above or below on certain dimensions and we probably all have that. So in that way, we're experiencing racism. <laughs> I can name it again and again. The fourth way you've been experiencing racism is you've been racially profiled. You may not be aware of how other people perceive you, but they perceive you as an Asian. That's the first thing they notice about you. And they're going to treat you differently than they would treat a white kid or a black kid. That's racism. And you're just not aware of it. When, when Asians go into retail shops, Workers don't pay attention to them as much. They assume you're not going to buy, but you're just kind of shopping around, looking around. I know a lot of students who told me that. 
They assume patients won't tip as well. So that probably subconsciously impacts them so they don't serve you as well because they're not looking for as good of a tip. So you may not experience racism overtly as you think of, but you experience it in a lot of ways. And so we're all experiencing racism. In the same way we're all experiencing the brokenness of the capitalist system, we're all broken by online behaviors that are wrong. Sin is a lot more broad than what you personally experience or what you personally do. So I think I'm racist. I think I've experienced trolling of people saying harsh things about Asian. I think uh, I feel bad about myself because I'm Asian. That's racism. This is a lot to think about. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I really appreciate this conversation, Russell, and, and for you making the time. Um, I, I think there's a lot, there's a lot of areas of growth, um, that I can, um, that I can pursue, um, based on just this last response, um, and some opportunities, um, to have conversations with my sons and frankly, just some awareness that I'd like to have, um, about my own, um, racist thinking, um, and reflection. Um, and I, I've kind of been on that journey, um, but I just really appreciate your, insight and clarity uh, and vision um, and personal example um, in this. And so thank you for the, for the work that you're doing. Um, could I, can I pray for us? Could I pray for you? Yeah, actually I do do prayer. Um, like I said, I'm on a journey to I have all these storms and the questions are being revealed, my own flaws as I lead. And um, I do want to come out of therapy and racial trauma on a, a, to be more like Jesus, it's sort of clear for me. It's like, what's what's the constructive aspirational hope? And you said a critical race theory only criticizes; it doesn't provide any models. For me, the model is Jesus. I want to become more like Jesus. I want our society to reflect the kingdom of God that Jesus preaches about. So I think we have those models, and I know how flawed. I fall short of those models. And so you could pray for me that uh, I could see day by day God breaking into making more like Jesus in society, more like the way the kingdom of God should be. Absolutely. Let's pray. Father God, hallowed be thy name. Your character, works, and reputation are distinct. And your heart for the foreigner is distinct. You have compassion and an empathy for those who are on the outside. And you have compassion and empathy for us. So Lord, may your, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May your will be done in Russell's heart. Um, may your will be done in our society at large. May your will be done um, in my heart. Um, would you change and shape us? Would you change and work in our families and in our spheres of influence, in our communities, um, among our Asian elders? And Lord, um, would, we, um, would you give us our daily bread? Would you sustain Russell in his work? Would you stay, sustain him um, both physically, emotionally, and spiritually, um, and socially? 
Would you um, provide and manifest coping mechanisms and the joy of being outdoors, whether it's um, hiking in Muir Woods um, or riding a bike or playing basketball? Um, would you also um, work amidst him um, in speaking truth and seeking after you, Jesus, and becoming more like you um, in your image, Lord? Um, and God, would you work that um, in these various communities of faith all throughout the Bay Area, our nation, and all over the world, um, that we, um, especially here in the West, um, would repent of our individualistic mindset and our um, the primacy of experience. Um, and so, Lord, would you continue to expand uh, your kingdom in and through him? And Lord, maybe most of all, um, in closing this Lord's Prayer, uh, you would allow us to um, forgive those who have trespassed against us because of the way you've forgiven us, um, because you became a foreigner um, and an exile and an outsider on our behalf. And so would you manifest that heart in Russell today, the heart that you've given him, uh, and draw him closer to you so that he experiences your abundant um, affection right now and today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.